0: So, with that said, and as I said, we will not meet the next two weeks, we will resume on Tuesday, August 22nd, um, and today we are in 1 Corinthians 9, so would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here today. We are grateful to have the opportunity to come together like this, to study your word, to plunge into Paul's letter here, and uh, try to hear him well, and... and Consider um, what, what the word is here for our own lives as well as for these people who lived 2,000 years ago and help us to hear Paul and help us to hear the good news and to hear the gospel and to talk about what it means to really be and live um, as Christians. All this we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Yes. You really meant August 23rd. What did I say? The menu class. Yeah, see, I, I, yeah, it's the 23rd, because the Sundays in August are first No, thir, no thir, 31st, then seventh, then 21 and 28. Yeah. I usually know my Sundays, but even that is fading away. <laughs> 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 I was always good at knowing my Sundays. So we should be online. We haven't been online since about 11:50, dear? Put a, put, honey, put a, make a shameless plug.
1: Okay, so Scott mentioned the 21st is the kickoff of this new ministry of Roberts, and that day also you may have gotten a little card going into church the last couple weeks, but um, that is the kickoff lunch. I don't. It's I, I don't sound any louder. Oh well, no. I don't. Right? No, I don't need that. I don't know why. <laughs> so I don't think you're coming through that. But anyway, if you would, guys. Plan that Sunday of coming down here for a delicious, free lunch. It is the kickoff of that ministry. Um, They're having catered with Mexican food. There is absolutely zero cost. And I promise you're not going to get down here and then people are going to make you sign up for all kinds of stuff. (laughs) It's just the the kickoff. And you can go um, just to like if you got the little what's going on at St. Andrew newsletter yesterday that most of us get on Mondays. There's a little spot where you just click on that and it takes you right to realm. All you need to do is put your name in and who else will be coming with you? How many total people? That's it.
0: That's okay. it, no mm-hmm. money changes hands.
1: No money changes hands. I heard this morning that it's filling up fast, so do yeah, it. Yeah, we'll,
0: we'll, we'll fill up fast because it's, it's down here, so and nobody's gonna wanna be out there for a sure.
1: Bit, a couple, <laughs> the doors will be open that day that people can go in or out and all of Piro will be open. So, I think people will be coming and eating and leaving, and that more people will be coming. And um, we heard that they will be checking IDs at the door. You must be 50 or older to enter. Anyway, we really hope you all will come. And I don't want people to be disappointed like, oh my gosh, we didn't even know about it. Sign up today. That's why I keep, keep Do it this going.
0: afternoon. Do it this afternoon. It's for us. It's for us, yes, exactly. Okay, thank you, Patty. So we have come now to 1 Corinthians 9, and it's really a follow-on to where we were two weeks ago, because as you know, we didn't meet last Tuesday because of Robert's service. And um, to go back to 1 Corinthians 8, one thrust of 1 Corinthians 8 is that Paul knows... As do the mature Christians in the group, that meat sacrificed to idols is meat sacrificed to nothing. So of course you can eat it, and they have every right to eat it, and and Paul urges caution around that, um, out of love for his brothers and sisters in Christ, and those who are newer to the faith, and. Today he's going to talk, in in 1 Corinthians 9, he talks about those rights, the rights that he has, and the rights that the Christians have, and the rights that the Corinthians have. And so I just want to um, talk about rights for a minute, because I think we sometimes get, we get mixed up when it comes to rights, and so I have an opportunity to talk about it here, I'll talk about it here. So there are certain rights that are given to us by God. These are the things like the inalienable rights in the Declaration of Independence. To life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. That, um, that is not an exhaustive list. It's three of the kind of list you might construct. And what's notable about all these rights is that nobody has to give you anything to exercise those rights. Your life is yours. Your liberty is yours. Your pursuit of your happiness is yours. Um, but what people can do is to interfere with those rights, okay? Um, and by jailing you or something like that. So, so uh, you know, in our country we have this system set up in which we try to constrain people's abilities to interfere with these enable rights that you've been given by God. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, there's more, some more of them spelled out in the Bill of Rights, but they're just yours, nobody has to give you anything to do it. Then there are a whole other set of what we call rights, but they're legal rights. These are rights that we decide as a society are good. You know, we want to take care of the elderly, right? So they have a right to, to, to a decent retirement. That was the idea behind Social Security. Might work well, might not so well, but, but that, that was the idea. People could have a right to health care, and that underlies a lot of the legislative programs in recent decades. Um, we, could have, we could say people have a right to housing, or whatever those are all legal rights because they all have to be if you are if it, if you are granted the right to housing it has to come from somebody else that's the difference somebody else has to participate and provide that housing to you or the doctor has to provide the health care to you or the nurse has to take care of you so So legal rights are a different thing than these inalienable rights that we have, you know, enumerated a few, some of them in the Declaration of Independence and other ones you could imagine are things like freedom to worship. I can worship anywhere, anytime unless somebody interferes with it and tries to keep me from doing that, um, which happens in countries all across the world. So rights are something that Paul is going to talk about today. Because in the ancient world, people had the conception of, of certain rights, and the Greeks, in particular, come out of a world in which, you know, they had this uh, long strain of democratic traditions going back to early Greece, I mean it's the true democracies to where they would all gather together and they would all vote. Now, the they is only men, <laughs> right? as we've talked about many times it's an utterly patriarchal world and it might be only free men and slaves would not have the right the right to vote but they they would you know that that was the kind of democracy that they had and they could grant rights and the Corinthians are very concerned about the rights that they have as Greek citizens okay So look at chapter 9, verse 1. Paul says, am I not free? It's a rhetorical question. He is free in Christ. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Another rhetorical question. He is an apostle. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Another rhetorical question because he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? (laughs) We get the drift of it now. Another rhetorical question. Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. By that he means, you know, an apostle is somebody who was sent forth to carry the good news. So, there are many people who have rejected Paul. Rejected the other apostles. The, the, the message is not well received, whether it's in the Jewish community or in the um, or in the Gentile communities. It's just, it's it's a difficult message to claim that this man, um, God, in essence, was crucified for our sins. Because as we saw early in the letter, Paul shows up and he says. I preach Christ in him crucified, and everything that goes that goes with that, so he says, even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. You are the proof, right the corinthian christians this is these are house churches that were started by Paul, um, he lived there for eighteen months, um, and they are like. You know, a seal on a, I guess people, I, I think I see these things at Hallmark Hallmark stores. Do I really? Little little seals, I, you could go to Hallmark and buy an E and some wax and you'd put it to make your letter really cute. Now I've noticed they have them to where the, it's a seal, but it's, it's a sticky. It's adhesive. It's a fake seal. A fake seal. Back <laughs> in the ancient world, they used real seals and... They would, you know, put the wax down and then the seal would be placed on it and the seal was often something very, the king would have a seal. It was a way of really marking that this was, that this was coming from the king or whoever it might be. So the fact that Paul is there with the Corinthians and they have come to faith in Christ is the seal, the proof, the evidence that he is actually an Apostle of the Lord. Because he's just laying out his bona bona fides in a way, right? This is who I am, you know who I am. Verse 3, This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. And there were many. Paul has a wonderful relationship, it seems, with with the Philippian Christians. Um, No sign of any contention or trouble. But with the Corinthians, it's a different story. And they always seem to have an uneasy relationship. You see it in 1 Corinthians, you see it in 2 Corinthians. They just just do. Um, Maybe it's because of their difficulty in really grasping and living the gospel and Paul's insistence that they do exactly that, Um, but it's it's not an easy relationship. So Paul says, This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? To go back to chapter 8. Sure. Absolutely. Paul can eat and drink anything he wants. Now, for the Jews, of which Paul is one, You know, that's still shattering news, a shattering idea because the Jews were always defined in part by their food laws, what they could not eat. They couldn't eat shrimp, they couldn't eat the BLT and the rest of it, right? So, um, but Paul has been moving the Christian movement and the Christian theology past that right that was uh, those food laws they were necessary in the past they were important in the past but now in Christ their time is gone so he says don't we have the right to food and drink don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us as do the other apostles and the lord's brother and cephas okay so paul now moves over to the topic of marriage does he have the right to be married yes he does is Peter married? Yes, he is. Are Jesus' half-brothers married? Yes, they are. Were almost all Jewish men married? Yes, they were. And I was asked but by the scholars before um, class, well, where did this business start in the church? Thousand, you know, to that, that priest had to be celibate because that's how it is in the Roman Catholic Church. And it started about a thousand years after Jesus. And honestly, I just don't know where it got started from. But as I read through the New Testament, I can find place after place. It seems to say that's misguided. Does Paul have the right to be... You know, I guess a a Catholic theologian would say, well, our priests have the right to be uh, married, but, but they choose not to. We choose that that is not the right path for the priests in in the Catholic Church so that they can devote themselves fully to the work of the Church. So verse 5, don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us? So think back to chapter 7. Paul's advice is that when believers get married they marry other believers. Remember he said don't divorce your unbelieving spouse, they might come to Christ through you, but really, if you have a choice, you want to marry a believer. It's kind of like Patty and the three questions she asked me about smoking, fatherhood, and Christian Christianity, right Patty? There you go, you're a smart woman. So, you know, and you could say, well, come on Scott, how much difference could it make? But if we took more seriously, I think, our rebirth in Christ, and that we genuinely are new people here in the body of Christ, that we have been crucified with Christ and resurrected with Christ, I think, I think we're led more and more to understanding that marriage really should be the marriage of disciples. That's really the goal. And, and that's not something to be treated lightly. You know, that's I, I performed, well, oh gosh, I performed. So when Lauren and Creighton got married, the, Robert and I did the service. And of course Robert, being ordained, he has to do the actual marriage part, but I had a lot to say <laughs> in that, that service. Because <laughs> she wanted me to, and he Creighton wanted me to. And one of the things I brought out was the fact that they needed to see their marriage as the marriage of disciples. And they needed to live that way, and they needed to pray that way. And and there were all these concrete steps that they could take to actually live that out in their marriage. Praying together and and, and worshiping together, and and it's just... As I said before, Richard Hayes, um, who's one of the top Paul scholars in the world, said if we spent as much time talking about the marriage disciples as we do talking about the rules of divorce, the Christian church would be a much stronger place. And I think he's right. Because nobody ever talked with me about that stuff. Okay, so he says, Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brother and Cephas, that's Peter, or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Now he's changed subjects again. <laughs> now he's talking about working for a living, getting paid for what he does. And he says, "Who serves as a soldier? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense?" Well, not many. The Roman legions were well-known, they were paid, they were funded by Rome, they were filled with career soldiers and veterans. And when the veterans retired, Rome generally sent them away somewhere to start up a new kind of Roman city. That's, That's because they thought it would be more peaceful that way than having all these soldiers, veteran soldiers, hanging around, around Rome and stuff. So they would send them away to these colonies and, um, that Rome had around the empire. So who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plots a vineyard and doesn't eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and doesn't drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, don't muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Which I, I, I so often need Bob Kerr with me. But, <laughs> but not for this one. Because he's my whole farming, agricultural, animal husbandry guy. Well, the ox, you know, h- how, did they, how did they mill down the grain? Well, they had big millstones, big round ones. that were two flat stones. And and the oxen would go in a circle pulling it and the stones would crush the wheat in order to expose the good part on the inside and what it's saying is don't close the oxen's mouth while it's working, you let it eat. You let it eat whatever falls off, you let it eat, it's earning it, my goodness. Right? Because it's the one who's actually doing the work. The humans don't have to push those giant stones around. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Well, I think God would be concerned about oxen. It's written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right and support from you, shouldn't we, as an I, Paul, have it all the more? So now it's clear what the subject is coming around to. It's coming around to people's favorite topics, which is, are the topics around the money. Okay? So, um, Paul is outlining what he sees as his right to be supported by these Corinthian Christians as he is doing this apostolic work. And that'll become clearer in a second. And obviously, if he's spending all of this time on it, the Corinthian Christians don't agree. <laughs> right? They're saying, whoa, 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 hang on, Paul hang on and you know it's sad to think but you know money is money is that way money exposes a lot of things doesn't it but now look what he says he says I have the right I have the right to be supported by you Corinthian Christians just as a soldier supported by his government I have the right to be supported by you in the work that I am doing for the Lord But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. So, Paul by trade is a tent maker. Now that sounds like a tent maker? I mean, how many of these people lived in tents? Not many people lived in tents, some did, but Paul had a lot of skill working in leather, working in canvas, He would have been good at making sales. He would have been good at making tents. When he meets um, Priscilla and her husband Aquila in Corinth, they set up shops next to each other in the town square where they, because they have this in common, and they work together, and they come to know each other, and Paul stays there, as I said, for 18 months. But the fact that he is going to support himself with his tent making doesn't diminish his his right to it and he wants the corinthians to to understand that i guess because i why because i think he doesn't want this to get translated into a denial of the Corinthians to help out other evangelists like Apollos, who's come to town, and so forth. But, but that's not what Paul's going to do. So, I thoughts, mean, questions. There
1: was a problem with the leaders that he left behind wanting to use that right to some extent and expect you know, to be compensated by the flock that Paul had created. And he's basically saying, my, my successors, you should support, and they, they have the right to expect.
0: Well, I, Mike's suggesting that, that when he moved on, because he's writing this a couple years later, writing it back to Corinth, that there would be leaders in the community. And the question is, what were they doing and were they entitled to some sort of support? And based on what Paul has written, it would seem that they are. Right? Right? And um, maybe... When the, when the
1: flock is happy about it. Maybe the
0: flock doesn't want to, right? But Paul, interestingly, lifts himself up as somebody who is entitled to it, but not going to take it. And that kind of mixes things up just a little bit, doesn't it? I think.
1: Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of congregations around that are just individual churches and stuff like that that I've known over the years where the pastor has a day job.
0: Yes. There are many pastors who have day jobs and they just come and they work with that congregation at night and so forth like that. Um, but Paul uh, Paul is this traveling apostle and traveling evangelist and so forth. And, um,
1: but don't we have I mean, we got to keep in mind that Paul isn't just writing a letter. He's supposedly answering a letter.
0: He's answering a letter. So
1: the Corinthians, uh, they had Somebody had a question about this, which he's
0: answered. Yes, he had a question. There's a problem of some kind. There was
1: dialogue before, before Paul came on all these subjects.
0: You're exactly right, Don. There was dialogue, and somehow, either in the form of letters or reports back to to Paul, he learns about these things, and so now he is. He is writing back and we have the problem of having to deal with only hearing one end of the conversation. It would probably be clear exactly what's going on if we had the letters he's responding to. Right? But we don't. So, in verse 13, he says, Don't you know that those who serve in the temple get their food from the temple? And that those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar. In the same way the Lord has commanded, the Lord, remember, Paul will sometimes say the Lord is commanding this, and other times say, no, this is me. So now he says the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. That's a pretty strong sentence, isn't it? That those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel um and Paul says it's it's not from him it's from Jesus and given to Paul and that this is the way the word should be carried out that those who are these apostles who are carrying forth the word of God and doing the preaching and growing the movement they should not be they should be freed from having to support themselves all the way along the road it it, it gets back to like Jesus you know how did Jesus get by for those two and a half or three years of public ministry when we meet him? Is he, you know, is he making little tables and chairs and stuff? Is he? No, he's not. There are people, particularly women, who support Jesus and the disciples and allow them to do what they do through this public ministry. That's, that's Mary Magdalene and some of the others who are actually providing real real financial support for Jesus and the disciples. Because the disciples around Jesus, they all gave up their livelihood for a while, right? Peter has a fishing business. The others have a fishing business. And somehow, I guess, you know, Mama's at home taking care of all of that. Because Peter isn't. Peter's traveling with Jesus. So in the same way the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. For I have, but I have not used any of these rights. And I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. I don't want your money. (laughs) For I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. This boast, you know... Sometimes Paul's kind of a kind of a funny guy. I would rather die than I would deprive, deprive me of this boast. It is important to him that he is supporting himself, even though he has the right, as the Corinthian leaders that are back there have the right to material support from the Corinthians as they're trying to grow this movement and take care of the needs. This is largely the pattern you know, in the um, in the church afterwards. You know, in the in the Methodist Church today, or, ordained elders, which are people like Robert, Arthur, Lauren, um, Jimmy, they actually work for the like the North Texas Conference for the UMC. In other words. They are actually like in the army, and so the Methodist Church is committed to maintaining a cer- at least a certain minimum level of compensation, and they in turn agreed to go and serve where they're told to go and serve. That's elders in the UMC, deacons in the USC, in the <laughs> USC, deacons in the UMC, like Kim Myers. Are not that way. She she is hired by the t- local church, and she isn't she is guaranteed any sort of minimum, you know, <coughs> compensation. And she doesn't she she can't be moved, willy nilly around by by the bishops. And um, there's this sense I think in the Methodist Church that for the elders they have they have signed up to be the leaders sort of in the gospel army of god being sent out doing the work being supported going where they need to be even if it's not where they want to go now that whole system is kind of collapsing a little bit cuz it 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 made more sense when the UMC was, was composed mainly of a whole bunch of small churches and that's not the case. The UMC is increasingly, in terms of membership, um, concentrated in larger churches which are just, just just a different thing. So itinerancy is what it's called. Itinerancy is the, is the process of the elders being moved around. and. What happened was the big, large churches like St. Andrew and some others, when they got large and were bringing people into the UMC, the bishops would generally leave them alone. And that's how Robert could be here for 35 years and never got moved, because why would the bishop, like, mess with that? So. Okay, so he says, "I have not used back in verse fifteen. I have not used any of these rights. I am not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me, for I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. For when I preach the gospel, I can't boast, since I am compelled to preach." He can't stop. He's compelled to preach. He calls himself a slave of Christ. This is what he must do. I show up, I preach Christ and Him crucified. I go on to the next town, I show I preach Christ and Him crucified. Go on the next town, I preach Christ and Him crucified. He is driven, He is compelled, He belongs to God, He's God's slave, this is what He this is what He must do. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And if I preach voluntarily I have a reward. If not voluntarily I'm simply discharging the trust committed the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. So, he's going to go from place to place. He's not going to be supported. And um, he's going to, to preach the gospel. So what are you all thoughts or questions or anything on that, that section about Paul and his rights, what he's entitled to, but what he's not going to exercise?
1: Doesn't he set a standard that it's hard for people to follow? take? But I realize compensation doesn't have to be money. It could be living orders. It could be...
0: Yes, Don, and as as the church grew and became more larger and more complex, you know, um, this idea of supporting the clergy, it's it it stayed. I mean, John Wesley was a priest in the Church of England, and as being a priest in the Church of England, he got paid. Um, He said he always lived on exactly the same amount of money so as his pay went up he just gave more and more because he figured out it took him, he needed like 28 pounds a year to live or something. So his giving went up as as his income went up. And of course, in many cases, it's been abused by people who make themselves filthy rich. That's not the idea either, but I, I think the idea was that the church needs a certain number of people who will be supported by the church so they can focus their full-time efforts on the work, and um, a place like St. Andrew, I can't imagine how it would run if all of the staff had day jobs, how would, how would that happen, how would that be, how would, it, how would we do that? I'm not aware of a church of any size that does that. Small community is a different story. If you have a little church of, you know, 25, 50, 100 people, you can do that. We have preachers, even in the Methodist church, that go from place to place to place to place. But a lot of those people are even supported by the UMC. The UMC is paying the salary that the local church can't afford. So, anything else on that part? Yeah. He's beholden to That's a pretty good point, Patty, that he, he doesn't want to be beholden to them. Mm-hmm. I could imagine that. I mean, you can get caught up in the right? That he just, he just says, look, this is what I do. I preach the gospel. It's all I do. I'm compelled to do it. If you're supporting me, you're, there are things that you're going to think go with that, right? There are going to be things that you think go with that. And for many of the people who are doing the work of the church, that's great. Remember, how, what is most of the work of the church? Do mo- Okay, let's just take St. Andrew, for example. How, what percentage of our staff actually preaches? Not even on a regular basis, just sometimes, just a few. Because most of the work is not that. Most of the work of the church is with people, with the children, and with the students, and with the adults, and putting together programs and things to try to teach people about Jesus and hold them together and all that kind of stuff. So, so um, just think back to Acts chapter 6, when... There's trouble around the distribution of bread and food between different groups of widows. And the apostles are overwhelmed by it. And they decide that the only way that they can keep doing the apostle thing is to appoint some deacons, some people to help. Take to get it organized and help make sure that everybody gets what they need, and so they 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 pick out seven men and make them these these deacons in the church, including one named Stephen, and they start to get an organization structure because of the work that's needed to be done.
1: You Scott, it was funny. Last Sunday, we were walking down to your class, and we we're trying to figure out who gave the contemporary service because most of everybody else was in in the
0: traditional class. Like Laura who preached?
1: And Jimmy was there and so forth. And it turned up the camera.
0: Yeah. And I, th- I think I think Kim preached live maybe at 9:30. Cuz what often went when Arthur preaches 5:30, they use a videotape at 9:30. But I think yeah. I think Kim preached live. So, but there's just a few of us who preach on 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 Sunday mornings, right? Yeah. The those few are a small portion of the larger staff of the church that make everything happen here that, that people want to have happen. So, anything else? I'm feeling so rugged. <laughs> I'm probably smelling a bit rugged too, I don't know. We'll, we'll find out later, won't we, Patty?
1: <laughs>
0: Scotty? You might hit that shower. Can a deacon lead the church? What? Can a deacon lead a church? A, a deacon can. Okay, so Andy's question is: could a deacon lead a church? That's a really good question for Arthur. My answer to that would be no. Because what deacons can't do is administer the sacraments. And without the sacraments, what sort of church do you have right? The sacraments are an essential part it's elders who can the elders take on a ministry of what the Methodist Church is called word and table, where, where they are the ones who administer the sacraments who can bless the elements in such a way to to enter us into the mystery of, of holy communion and and deacons deacons are not supposed supposed to do that though Charles Stokes did it for many many years. Jennifer. Jennifer can do that because in the Methodist Church, there's this special category called local pastor. And local pastor is someone who goes through a multi-year course of study, but is not, not, not the full seminary ordained thing. And that's Jennifer. And that local pastor office, if you want to think about it, was done in order to provide. So we had pastors to go to smaller churches who could lead a church, who could administer the sacraments. Deacons are supposed to be people like Kim. Kim is very, she's, she's very program-oriented. She has a lot of experience in children's ministries and student ministries and that kind of thing, and that sort of work, like in Acts 6, is the work of deacons, you know? It gets all kind of mixed up and, and so forth, I guess, a little bit. And it's all going to change, like everything else is changing in our world. Okay, anything else? Yes? So who do bishops report to? Bishops, who do bishops report to? Bishops would report to the um, el- bodies that elect them to be bishops, the jurisdictions and the general conferences. Bishops don't actually... Okay, so I don't want to get, spend too much time on this. But bishops in the Methodist Church are don't have a lot of power. The only thing that bishops in the Methodist Church can, can have power over really is the appointment of pastors. Which is, can be a, a powerful tool to try to exert your influence, but they don't run budgets. They don't all the kind of things that most of everything that goes into the making of churches and growing of churches, they're not they they don't do, they 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 appoint they appoint pastors. So it's Bishop McKee who appointed Allison to First Church, Richardson. Okay, that's that that's the essence. But see, so if you have a time when the big, large, steeple churches, like St. Andrew, can hold on to people like Robert or Arthur, then the bishop's influence is diminished. Does that make sense? Does to me, I don't know, this is all on podcast. I'm really not the guy to talk about this. It's really Arthur, but these are my observations over the last 20 years. Okay. So back to 1 Corinthians chapter nine, verse nineteen. So Paul says, though I am free and belong to no one, he says, you know, he does belong to Christ. But he's making a point here. Though I am free and belong to no one, you know, I'm nobody's putting fetters on me. Although I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself what? a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to get back to one of his big teaching points, so as to win those under the law. For those not having the law, the Gentiles, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but am under God's Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. So... At the first portion of that paragraph is a little confusing, but the thrust of it is carried in the last sentences. That, that Paul will be who he needs to be to preach the gospel effectively. Right? Whether he's talking to a Jewish audience, or he's talking to a Gentile audience, um, People who are of low status—that's probably what the week is about. Um, He will be—he, how would I put it in today's world? He will do the things that he feels he needs to do to connect with people, right? So that they—they will hear him, and they—and they will share in the gospel, right? So if you're if you're a preacher today, you need to know who you're preaching to you might not use the same vocabulary in some settings as you use in other settings just because the point isn't the vocabulary you use the point is getting the gospel heard so in act 17 paul the jewish pharisee shows up in athens and he's going to speak to the deep thinkers in athens at the areopagus this famous council it's even there's a rock named there. It has this very deep, long history in the history of Greece. The Areopagus um, there uh, at the Acropolis and in the market below. So, and if you look at it in Acts 17, he speaks, he, it, it isn't a Jewish talk. He's talking to them in their terms. In fact, let's, let's just look at it, Acts, Acts 17. For preachers, this you know this is this is this is one of our favorites because it Acts 17. He's in Athens. This is before he gets to Corinth because he's moving north to south, and um, he comes to Athens first. So look at Acts 17 verse 22. Well, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, that's a council of, I I call them a council of deep thinkers, 1722, 1st Acts, 1722, Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Because these people, they had temples everywhere. To every God and goddess they could possibly imagine, find out about, know know about, because what they don't want to do is piss off the wrong God. That's the gist of it. I'm telling you, that is the gist of it. It would lead to an anxiety-filled life. He says, I even fought an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Why would you have a temple to an unknown God? Because you didn't want to miss anybody. You're covering your bases, exactly. <laughs> Just in case, right over there, that's the real deal. <laughs> I've got a temple to you, buddy, so leave me alone. <laughs> really, you, you know, for, for, for these people, their lives, a lot of their lives were spent kind of avoiding the stuff that the gods would do to them. This is brought out in of all things, the movie oh, I'm dating myself here, Jason and the Argonauts. Great movie. Yeah, yeah, great movie. Go and watch it now, and tell me how great it is. <laughs> great movie. But in the movie, there are these repeated scenes of the gods up on top of Mount Olympus. Yep. And they gather around this big thing and there's a hole like in the clouds to where they can see all the little people down there. Yeah, like a well. And they can see all the little people down there. And, oh, I'm gonna mess with this one. Oh, watch what I do to this one. Oh, watch what I... That is actually pretty much the mindset that people have. What you want to do is to stay out of their way. Stay out of their way. And so, of course, you build a temple to an unknown God. So Paul says, to go on, So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times and histories and the boundaries of their land. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far away from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Very Greek ideas. Have our being. Why are we human beings rather than human becomings? The Greeks thought about stuff like that, in which we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to give it up. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Well, that's when all the jaws would drop around and so forth. But is there anything really Jewish in this? Does he talk about, does he talk about Moses? Mount Sinai? The law of Moses? The food laws? Any of that? No. Because that's not the audience he's talking to. That's not the people he is among. So, to go back to 1 Corinthians, he is saying that he will be who he needs to be. Doesn't
1: that sound like
0: a politician? Yeah, you know, I mean, politicians, they earn their bad names, their bad reputations, right? Because all, all politics is us working out how we will all live together in the polis, the city, right? And and share our lives together and help one another. It's just out of sin and all of its effects that it gets so mixed up. But as a preacher I hear Paul and there's see, these are things preachers talk about and write about. Do you think that as a preacher you you're called to preach the gospel exactly the same way regardless of wherever you are? No, I don't think so. The message, has to be the, same. the message is the same, but how you do it? That, that was my example of vocabulary. You know, you can dial the vocabulary up or you can dial the vocabulary down a little bit, but the message has to say the same. The message is simple, you see. The message is, what does Paul say the message is? Christ and Him crucified. So
1: the difference would be the politician has many
0: messages. Politicians don't even know what messages they have. <laughs> <laughs> they just want to hear what you think you want and give that to you. But
1: what you're saying, Paul preach the same message? No matter.
0: He preached the God same. What language, he didn't vary the message. If you go back and read the thing from Athens, he gets he talks about God and creation. And who God is and give up these idols and Jesus and the resurrection, but there's no mention of the Jewish stuff, Moses and the law. Exactly. So the message is the same, so it is the same, Christ and him crucified. And, um, you know, it's for preachers in the Christian church today. It's one thing we try to remind each other about, and you can see it in the writings and all the rest of it that are everywhere by preachers and theologians and stuff is 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 to come back to the message it 's so it 's so tempting and so often happens that you turn the church into oprah right because well because there's so many needs well l- let me help you figure out how to be better parents and how, to do this, and how to do this and how to do this and how to do this and how to do this. And pretty soon nobody's heard the gospel. The good news, Christ and him crucified for a very for a very long time. And that's that's what you have to be cautious about. One of my favorite teaching preaching people, I haven't I don't know him. Haven't met him, but he was out in California, names John Ortberg he once wrote an article that has always stuck with me. He says, you know, as a preacher, it's so tempting, you know, to roll out, to roll out the elephants and the band and all the other stuff that'll get people's eyes open and they're all big and so forth, because you want people to come and you want them to fill up the seats and all the rest of it. But he said, No, we can't do that. We can't do that. We have to preach the gospel and crucify it and have more confidence in the gospel and have more confidence that God will help us see that people who need to hear the gospel will hear the gospel and not roll out the dancing elephants. So I I just think Paul is a very, what I like about Paul is he's a very practical man and he's traveled all around the eastern end of the empire. I'll be who I need to be in this place, in that place, in that place. But the message is the same. I preach Christ and Him crucified. He said earlier, what, what, at the beginning of this letter, what happens? I show up in town, what do I do? I preach Christ and Him crucified. Now that presentation of the gospel is going to be different if he has a Jewish audience than a Gentile audience. Because to a Gentile audience, he can't talk about Moses and all that stuff. They don't know who Moses is. Um, so it's really, I don't know, I, I find it pretty, pretty, pretty encouraging. Paul is definitely—he's a pastor type. He's a—he's he, a preacher. He's a preacher type in Isn't what he does. Similar like
1: that every week at Saint Andrew. That Miss um, Rachel, she has the scripture. Yes. She knows exactly what the pastors are going to be preaching on. Right. She tries to do the exact same thing for the children that author or yourself is gonna do. That's a
0: very good illustration. So if you didn't hear Patty, Patty reminded me that that's what Miss Rachel does. Let us pray, okay? That's what (laughs) Miss Rachel does. I mean, she knows what the topic of the sermon's gonna be unless you really kind of change it up on her at the last minute. And she records something for the children, taking some piece of that, some piece of the good news, but she uses it in terms that the children can understand. Right, You know, I find my experience with adults in the church is that many adults, their real education in the Bible and in theology, such as it was, kind of stopped in the fifth grade. Because when you were little, you kind of got some of that stuff, and you talked about Jesus, and you talked about Moses. But then when you got into youth programs, it was kind of different. At least it was at one time in the Methodist Church. It was just kind of different. You didn't get so much of that kind of thing. And then you become adults, and you kind of think, well, I know this, and then you get embarrassed to admit that you maybe don't. And so you, so people, people weren't, weren't getting it. And that's what's been so refreshing to be to be at St. Andrew for 20 years, and St. Andrew's commitment, Robert's commitment, to teaching the Bible and doing it seriously for adults who, as I've been told a hundred times, who never really were helped in connecting dots. And sermons would be inspiring, but in terms of connecting dots or see any of those fit together, I, I, I've been Methodist since I was 20 and I had a lot of unconnected dots for too many of those years. So, okay, Anything else? Okay, verse 24. Well, let's pick it up, because sometimes uh, the breaks are, are, are artificial. At the end of verse 22, I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I would never say that myself. If I were to meet with Paul, I'd say, Paul, do you really mean to say that? Is it you, Paul, who saved these people, or is it God? I'd like to think he would look at me and he would go, Scott, <gasps> you're right. <laughs> I've become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? So now he's encouraging them. like Robert. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Robert loved sports metaphors. So does Paul. Paul uses a lot of athletic metaphors. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. And you can see the metaphor that he's using. You go to the games, these athletic contests and stuff, people train for it. You know, again, this is John Ortberg, had a great section of writing once about, discipleship is about training, not trying. It's not enough to simply say you're trying. Nobody would go out and decide, ah, today I'm gonna run a marathon. Let me put on some shoes and off I'll go 26 miles later. (laughs) <laughs> no, nobody would do that. If you're going to go run a marathon, you would train for it. So Ortberg's point was that look, train, trying is not enough. Trying is not. No, you got to train for it. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you have to train, and that training happens in prayer and worship and education and discipline and serving others in all these different ways. But you've got to you've got to train for it, not simply not simply try. And so Paul says, they, you have to train. Therefore, I do not run like somebody running aimlessly. I don't fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. What do you hear in that sentence? I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. What do you hear in that? Discipline. Discipline. What? Discipline. Somebody who has been through a lot and has to, I think, sometimes make himself go forward. Mm -hmm. Right? He has to make himself go forward. His body says, I'm tired. I'm laying down. I got beat up yesterday. (sighs) Just leave me alone, Paul. But he says, nope, we're going to go. Come on, body. Let's go up. We're going to go. We're going to go on. So, no. Stop. We're going to go. That's what I hear. Discipline, determination, relentlessness, persistence. Um, I think Paul is an A++ kind of person. Um who is pouring all of that into this sharing of the gospel. He is so convinced of the truth of the gospel. See, that's the thing, right? The truth of the gospel. He's That fit him
1: um, right real well here at St. Andrew.
0: Yeah, we do have a lot of A++ people here, don't we? We do indeed. So... Um, I don't know if you were able to go to Roberts Memorial Service or if you um, heard it or saw it afterwards or online. But, you know, his son, Will, preached, mm-hmm. right? And and Will is ordained in the UMC, though he's not serving the church right now. He's working in a nonprofit. But Will preached, I just thought, I just thought a wonderful message about his father. And what I, I wanted to hug him afterwards because because he got to this line in the sermon and it, he said why because it's true and I it jumped out of me it jumped out of Patty we commented on it afterwards it is it, it we don't come to the gospel because it might help us a little bit next week or help us be a little better person or that that's not it it is because it is true it is true. It is, it, is what, it is reality. And for Paul, that's his fuel. That's his fuel. He shows up, preaches Christ and Him crucified, as he's told to the to the um, leaders in Athens, um, raised from the dead. Why? Because it's true. It happened. And it changes everything. And, and Paul wants to help people grasp how much it changes their lives. And when we come back together, um, on the 23rd, how's that, Um, we will begin to enter some more passages where Paul is dealing with challenging issues that are raised for him. Women, head coverings, worship, communion, all sorts of things. Uh, Because as Don raised earlier, this whole letter is written in response to stuff. And so we will have a whole bunch of stuff, some of which is pretty darn challenging, and some of which you'll have to be willing to learn more about the ancient world if you're going to hear Paul well. Okay? But we will pick up there in chapter 10. Should I think where we are? In chapter 10 and on the 23rd. So any final thing before I close this in prayer? Do you have anything to add, Patty? I Candy
1: just put it, jumped
0: out at her, too. Yeah. I imagine there were a lot of people out there who jumped out. It. And I'm going to lift up one prayer. Charlotte Anderson often sits right here. I think I told you a couple of weeks ago that she was going on a cruise and couldn't go on a cruise because her knee failed. Her knee, her replaced knee failed. And so she went on, came back, and she underwent knee repair surgery Um, last week and she's recuperating from that and just uh, keep her in your prayers and pray that they've really able to do a more permanent solution for Charlotte if you would. So would you pray with me? Gracious Lord we are we are your people we are your people called to the work that you have given us help us in that work to know that 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 help us to feel compelled to do this work to recognize that we are all part of this project to spread the good news to live out the good news to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and Be people of justice and mercy and kindness and compassion. For this is the life into which we have been reborn. Help us to know that it's true. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.